Good evening, everyone. Thank you, David. Thank you, Leonard. Thank you, Rachel. I've no doubt we'll hear lots more about your time away, Rachel. Looking forward to that. As you, uh, as you read scripture, whether you're a Christian or, or not a Christian, there are times whenever you come across a sentence or a piece of advice or an instruction that kind of stops you in your tracks, a phrase or an idea that sounds so strange that it makes you wonder, was the person who said that really being serious? Or were they just saying it in order to shock? If you were here this morning, we, uh, we looked at one of those phrases. The command from Jesus to love your enemy and to pray for those who persecute you. And as we said this morning, that kind of phrase, that kind of idea sounds so unnatural. Just so out of the ordinary. It, it's admirable but yet it, it's kind of slightly odd. Well, tonight as we, we start another new series called Keeping It Real, based, based on the book of James, we come across another one of those phrases that when you read it, 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 it jars with you. It's a line we all know, but, but no matter how many times you read it or how many times you hear it, it, it still seems bizarre. And here it is. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Like, how is that possible? It, 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 does that not sound a bit kind of twisted almost? A bit sick. I mean, how can you honestly say to someone, and, and we all know people, and there may be people here, how can you honestly say to someone who's going through the mill, who's dealing with some pretty major challenges, how can you say to them, why don't you take a moment and thank God for what you're going through? Consider it a sheer gift that you're facing this testing and this obstacle. It, it's strange. And yet both those phrases, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, both of those are part and parcel of what it means to live life in all its fullness, according to Scripture. They are Difficult, yes. Strange, yes. But they're also genuine nuggets of wisdom and advice for those who follow Jesus. They are potentially transformational if we take them on board and live by them. They may sound like nonsense, but they do in fact make perfect sense if we're going to navigate life in God's alternative countercultural, world-changing kingdom. And so as we begin exploring the, the rather popular and practical book of James, Let's see what we can discover about, about joy in trials. What can we actually find out from, from this book about how we do that and the reason behind such a perspective? Let me just give you a bit of general background about the book of James. Many of you will, will know this already. I, I realize that lots of people here have studied this book in different settings. But James is a book of the Bible that lots of people love. 
It's a book of the Bible that people gravitate towards. Give me some reasons, better congregational participation again. Give me some reasons why so many people love the book of James. Practical. Practical. Thank you, George. Why else? Okay, there's one reason why people love the book of James. Great. Anything else? Just as why people love the book of James. Very short. Very short. <laughs> Good man, Yarrow. <laughs> Anything else? Speaks plainly. Yes, thanks, Joel. It is a practical book. It's a very down-to-earth book. It's a very direct book. People would say that James is one of those writers who, in a sense, shoots from the hip. He doesn't get bogged down in a lot of technical detail or material. It's a very everyday book because it deals with things like, well, how we speak. It deals with things like how we think. It deals with things like how we react whenever we get sick. How do we deal with wealth or lack of it? And this is one of the reasons why this, this series is called Keeping It Real, because James seems pretty intent on making sure that we do keep it real. And so for l- all these reasons and many more, James connects readily and easily. But alongside being one of the most celebrated books of the New Testament, James is also, some of you might find this strange, James is also one of the most criticized. I'm sure lots of you have heard what the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther described James as. Who can tell me what he thought of James? It was an epistle of straw. That's what he said about the book of James. And even centuries before him, many centuries before him, a number of early Christian believers actually questioned whether the book of James should be included in the New Testament. Now part of the reason for these or those rather strong reactions, is that unlike most other New Testament writers, and certainly the letters, there is precious little in James about Jesus. Jesus is explicitly mentioned only twice. And there's not much about the two defining and kind of central events for Christian belief, the cross or the resurrection. Not a lot in there about those. In addition, some people criticize James because there doesn't seem to be a lot of kind of cohesion to it. He, he jumps all over the place, almost from paragraph to paragraph, he's on to a different subject. It's a bit random according to some people. Now, there's others who love it for that reason. But for many people, they, they find that there's no real structure to the book of James. But probably the most famous criticism that is leveled at James is what? What's the most famous thing that he's criticized for? Yeah, grace and works. That he contradicts Paul. And for some people, that's close to a cardinal sin. You see, James appears to intentionally challenge or take on one of Paul's big ideas. One of Paul's most cherried teachings, which was that we are justified. How does Paul say we are justified? By what? Faith alone. James comes along, seems to turn that on his head. When he writes in chapter 2, you see that a person is considered righteous but by what they do, not by faith alone. And so for certain people, James mangles Scripture. At this point, and all Scripture... 
So although James is popular, he's not, or it's not, without its critics and detractors. And, and we will address, or we will attempt to address some of these issues as we work our way through the book. One other introductory comment, get you involved again. Who was James? Who was he? A brother of Jesus, a half-brother of Jesus, Mary, yes. But although one of the first things that you read about Jesus' brothers in Scripture is they didn't believe in him. For even his own brothers, according to John, did not believe in him. And although that might be the case, if you fast forward to the start of the book of Acts, you actually realize that the brothers are listed alongside Jesus' first disciples who are gathered for prayer and worship. So something must have happened to the brothers of Jesus during their lifetime because although back then they didn't believe in him, by the time you get to the start of the book of Acts, they are gathered with the first disciples for prayer and for worship. That's quite a change. That's quite a shift. So the question is, what, what happened? Well, in terms of James, we know what happened. Because we know that post-resurrection, Jesus actually appeared to his half-brother. So 1 Corinthians 15, it says, then he appeared to James. Paul actually specifies that. He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, says Paul, he appeared also to me. And it was not long after this that James becomes one of the kind of leading lights and leading Christians in the early church in Jerusalem. So, so James is a person who has come on quite a journey, and that's important for us to know. That's important information to bear in mind as we start reading his book. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to James chapter 1. And what we'll do is what we normally do. We'll stand for the public reading of, of God's Word. So let's stand together and read the first eight verses. It's page 1213, if anybody wants to grab a copy of a pew Bible. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Grab a seat. Most, uh, most writers of the New Testament books and letters begin by introducing themselves, certainly the letters. And I think it's interesting if you look here at how James introduces himself, because right up front, he doesn't play the, the half-brother of Jesus card. That, that's not how he introduces himself, although you, you would have understood if he had have done. Instead, he introduces himself as a servant, a servant of God and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. The biological connection that he had to Jesus is one thing, but the critical issue for James is to say, listen, here's my kind of spiritual connection to Jesus. 
James is a follower and a friend of Jesus. That's the thing he wants people to know. And a key sign for him in terms of what does it mean to be a follower and friend of Jesus is that he is a servant. And Jesus is his master, which is why he refers to Jesus as Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a servant of the Lord. He is in control of of my life. Now, as I said a moment ago, Jesus is only explicitly mentioned twice in this book. This is the first time. But right from the word go, James has nailed his colors to the mast. James is making it clear right up front, this is who is at the forefront of my life. This is who is in control of my life. And everything that I am going to then say from here on in flows from that, needs to be seen through that lens and that filter. James is a servant of Jesus. And and I would suggest that many of the criticisms that are leveled against him kind of forget or overlook the starting point. But back to the text, because then you'll notice that this letter was originally addressed to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now, the 12 tribes is how the people of God were described in in the Old Testament. And the fact that they are now scattered helps us to understand that James, who was a leader in the predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem, he was primarily at this time writing to the people of God, to the Jewish Christians who are scattered all over the Roman Empire. So, so those were his original readers. But having said that, that this letter is not restricted to them. As we think about what his words might have meant for those 12 tribes, in a sense, scattered throughout the Roman Empire, we are also meant to consider, well, what are they saying to, what are his words about to say to us? What do they say to all Christians at all times, in all places? Because this remains relevant to us who are gathered here, not just scattered, but who are gathered here in this place at this time. And so after this quick introduction, here's who I am. Here's who I'm writing to He just launches in with this huge phrase, consider it pure joy. And note from this phrase that it's not if, it's whenever you face trials. In other words, you should expect to. They're just part and parcel of life. They're part and parcel of Christian living. Does that mean you welcome them? No. Does that mean you ever want them? No but they're simply a reality. And again, I know that's not news to anybody here. And James knows that. He knows that his original readers were up against it. They were really having a difficult time back then. And he knew it. And so he writes to them in the midst of their trials and he encourages them to not let what they are going through to derail them. Don't let what you're going through wreck your faith. Hang in there. But the question is, how do you do that, James? How do you hang in there? Well, the first thing, according to him, you need to do, and this is where it gets hard, is you need to consider it pure joy. Now, note that first word. I'm going to try to break this down as much as possible. Consider. This is not about how you feel. 
This is about how you think. James isn't telling anyone to fake their feelings. This is not about plastering on some kind of happy face or stiff upper lip and getting on with it. James is telling us to think about our trials in a certain way. There is a mindset that James says you need to adopt. If you're going to get through this, if you're going to hang in there, if you're going to survive, consider it pure joy. You need to think in a particular way. And as we all know, so much of Christian discipleship and transformation has got to do with the renewing of our what? The renewing of our minds. Well, this is one of those areas where this hits home. Consider it pure joy. How do you think about what you're going through? And notice that James refers to trials of many kinds. In other words, this is, this is pretty general. And what it means is that whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing or having to deal with, which you maybe think, well, it's unique to me, and therefore it's outside of what James had in mind here. Can I say it isn't? What he's about to go on and say applies to you and applies to your situation. This is not just for the person beside you in front of you or for people back home. This, what is being said here, relates and applies to you in what you're going through, in what you will go through. There is a way for you to think about what you are facing that can bring you joy. In fact, if we kind of ignore this, if we ignore what he's going to go on to say and reckon, well, listen, it doesn't apply to my situation, then do you know what we might be doing? We might actually be robbing ourselves of joy. So the question is, what's the point? Why hang on there? Why should I think about what I am going through in such a way? Why? Well, James goes on, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. You see, it's via trials that you learn to persevere. It's via trials that you learn to persevere, which in, its, which in and of itself is one thing. Perseverance is a good thing, but again, it's not the end game. It's not the only thing. What is the point, the purpose, and the result of perseverance? Well, James tells us it's growth. Look at the end of verse 4. Because what James says is, listen, this is about maturing. This is about, and he uses this incredibly strange phrase, this is about being complete. If you can think in a particular way about your trials, you will learn how to persevere. And if you can learn how to persevere, you will grow. You will become mature. You will become complete. This is about developing as a Christian. Now, this, this teaching isn't unique to James. I mean, Paul says something along the same lines to the church at Rome. He says, we also glory in our sufferings. What? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. You see, hassles in life have the potential to be profoundly productive and life-altering which I know is easy to say, but it's not easy to embrace it if you're going through them. But as someone has said, faith needs the pushback of trials for us to grow spiritually. 
And I think it's fascinating, and I can honestly say this from kind of limited personal experience, but I can honestly say that it's through the tough stuff of life that I've often learned the most. Does that mean I go looking for it? Not a chance. Because remember, whenever you face tough stuff will come. Trials are inevitable. It's whenever, it's not if every single person in this church has done, is, will do face trials. But it's often in and through them that our faith intensifies, our faith develops, our faith deepens. And if nothing else, what this does is it keeps us humble because it reminds us, you know, I have a lot of growing to do. I need to mature. I, I need to grow. I, I need to go deeper with God. But let me also suggest, and again, this may sound a bit strange, we, we should be encouraged by all this because it assures us that there is a purpose in our trials or for our trials. They are never wasted, pointless experiences. God is doing something in us as we persevere. He is at work. I'm not for one moment saying that suffering in and of itself is good, but what I am saying is that what God can accomplish through suffering is good. I'm also not for one minute wanting to minimize the pain or the frustration or the difficulties that you or the people that you know are going through, the grief that you are going through, the grief that we know some people are going through the breaking relationship, the broken relationship, the lack of relationship, the serious health issues physically, physical health issues, mental health issues, the temptation, the stuff that's been done to us, the scars that we carry. I'm not underestimating any of those or any other trial or test that you're going through, but I am saying, or rather James is saying, do you know something? Consider it pure joy. Think about these trials in light of what God can achieve in us through them. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Hardships often prepare ordinary people for an extraordinary destiny. It's still hard, but it, it may just save us because there's no doubt that when, you, when you're going through trials, they become all-consuming. It can be so hard to think of anything else. We get bogged down in our problems. We might even turn in on ourselves. And so there is a battle of the will here. James isn't saying we will automatically experience joy and suffering, but he is saying, listen, consider it. Think about it in a particular way. Fight to think about them in the right way. Consciously reimagine them from a different perspective. See what God is doing in you in this situation. But let's move on. Because if we're going to gain this mindset, if we're going to be able to think differently, if we're going to then be, be able to persevere and as a result grow, if we're going to know how, if we're going to be able to know how to conduct ourselves in trials, through trials and around them, then we're going to need wisdom. And so it's no big surprise that James recognizes our need for this. And so he says, listen, if any of you lacks wisdom, as you come to this, if, if, if any of you lacks wisdom as you read this and as you process this and as you think about this, then here's what you do. Ask for it. 
Just ask for it. And to help us do that, James reminds us of what God is like because you see, the key to asking God is knowing God. So listen to how God gives wisdom and listen to what this tells us of God's character. And this is all in verse five. What James says is, listen, if any of you lacks wisdom, just ask God for it. Who gives generously. We worship and serve a generous God. He's not miserly. He is ready and willing to give. Secondly, he gives to all. All who belong to him. This is not just for super Christians. This is not just for kind of Premier League Christians. Those of us rattling about in the conference league as Christians. We are included here. This is a generous God who gives to all. And then this phrase, without finding fault. How refreshing is that? That God isn't standing with some checklist to decide whether or not you deserve it. Or whether you've used your quota of kind of get out of jail cards for free this week. Or whether you've got everything right this week. He gives to those who belong to him without finding fault. And I, I don't know about you, but I find that so encouraging. Until I kind of read the next bit anyway. Because there's a qualification. And it's not a small one. It's quite big. Because look at verse six. He says, you must believe and not doubt. And that's disappointing. Because who doesn't have their doubts? But as I looked into this, I discovered, and I found this helpful, that James is using the word doubt in a very specific way here. He's not saying, listen, you must never have questions. He's not saying you should never wrestle or with, the, with the ways or struggle with the ways of God. He's not saying we, we need to somehow work ourselves up into a state of absolute belief. No, because as James unpacks this a bit further, it becomes apparent that by doubt, what he actually means, and, and, and we need to kind of read on right to the end of verse 8, but what he actually means is someone who has split loyalties. Someone, he says, who's double-minded. Someone who's a bit fickle. Someone who kind of wants to hedge their bets. Someone who asks God for wisdom, yes, but also checks out other options. Who wants the best of both worlds. They want God's wisdom, but you know something? I'm also going to look to worldly wisdom. Just to be in the safe side. Just to cover kind of all my bases. Just to create what I think will be a broader platform. But James says, do you know something? That way of living makes you unstable, which in itself is ironic. Because what he says is you'll end up like a wave on the sea that is being blown all over the place if that is your mindset. If that is your attitude. Then to quote verse 7, you shouldn't expect to receive anything. Don't be double-minded. When you ask for wisdom from this generous God who gives to all without finding fault, just go there. Just ask him and trust. 
We need to ask God for his wisdom with a single-minded intention. And if we do, we can be sure, according to James, that we will get the wisdom we need. Does that mean we'll always feel like we're kind of on the ball? No, it doesn't. But there's a difference between receiving wisdom and feeling wise. Maybe you have prayed for wisdom many times and you don't feel any the wiser. That doesn't mean you haven't received it. Verse five is a promise whenever we ask and sincerely ask, it will be given to you. That means that God's wisdom will direct us in the decisions we then go on to make. We mightn't feel any more confident, but God will just give it to us. So, says James, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Think about them in a particular way. See them from another perspective. Because as you think about them in an alternative way, as you consider them from a different perspective, you will persevere. And as you persevere, you will then grow and mature. You will go deeper. And if you want to see it like this, if you want to have that perspective, then you need to ask for God's wisdom. And the thing about asking for God's wisdom is this. He freely gives it because he's a generous God. And he gives it without finding fault. And so, as we kind of come to the end of these first eight verses, and then Tim will pick up the next section next week. So the thing is this this evening. Whatever trial you're facing right now, or inevitably will, here's my prayer for you that you will think differently about it, learn to persist in it, discover growth through it, and ask for wisdom as you need it. Can I say that again? Whatever trial you're facing at the moment, or you will face, I pray that you will be able to think differently about it, learn to persist in it, discover growth through it, And if you need wisdom, just ask for it.